0: Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues
1: with a focus at the local,
0: national and global levels.
1: Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan, and this episode of the podcast is going to explore the independent review of children's social care in England. And we're recording on the 16th of July, just a month after the publication of the review's first report, which is titled The Case for Change. With me to discuss the review is Caroline Willow, director of Article 39, a charity which fights for the rights of children living in state and privately run institutions. Esme Daily, a social work manager with Achieving for Children and Baswa London branch chair. And Becca Pierre, professional officer with Baswa England. Caroline, Esme, Becca, how are you all feeling? Um, I'm
2: feeling very well. Thank you, Andy. Um, it's it's Friday and I'm off on holiday tomorrow, so it's a good day.
1: Oh, tremendous. Tremendous. Wonderful. Um, Esme, how are you?
0: We're on duty this week and we're having a really busy week um, trying to get out to see as many children as we can so we're having a tough week and i'm looking forward to next week where we can take stock a bit
1: okay well thank you very much for for making the time to join us today and becca welcome back
3: good to be here as always yes
1: Yes. you're keeping well
3: i am i've just had my coffee so i'm i'm with it for at least the next hour so
1: oh good i've had coffee and about three hours sleep um so yes i'll be with you for the next 45 minutes if I can do it. Um, Caroline, to start us off, can you tell me a little bit about the review of children's social care and and what it's going to cover?
2: Yeah. Um, Well, we have to start with the general election of 2019. And in the Conservative Party's manifesto, they promised a review of the care system. And the care system is the care that children who don't live with their families receive and um, from their local authorities who are in law, uh, they're what's called corporate parents, which is not a very um, personal or sensitive term itself. Um, So that's what was promised, that the care that children and young people as they're growing up in foster care, in children's homes, in other settings would be reviewed. And also that the care, help, support, guidance that adults who've grown up in care get. Uh, So that was in 2019. Then we had the election and a very long wait to see what would be happening with the review. Several hundred of us uh, signed a letter, which was coordinated by John Radu, who uh, has a long career in children's social care, um, as well as growing up in care himself. He coordinated a letter uh, from several hundred of us to the Secretary of State for Education, Gavin Williamson, And that letter set out uh, our aspirations, really, for the review of the care system. Uh, We wanted to make sure that it was independent, that the rights of children and young people and adults would be protected and strengthened by this review. And that the government uh, committed to a cross-party process and that it would take as long as it needed to be taken to take. Um, alongside that, uh, many organisations, through a charity called Become, wrote to Gavin Williamson as well, again asking that the review be independent, that it be rights focused, and that the government commit to funding and implementing the recommendations of the review once it had reported. Uh, so that's the backstory.
1: And does it have the independence that, that you were hoping for?
2: No, no, it doesn't. Uh, the review uh, has been widely criticised from, from the very beginning, from the first announcement by the Secretary of State of the chair of the review.
1: And who is that? The
2: chair of the review is uh, Josh McAllister, who uh, formerly was chief executive of an organisation called Frontline which uh, trains social workers um, in a very quick way. Um, It's the social work equivalent of Teach First, so it's a fast-track process for training social workers. And the reason many were concerned um, about the independence of Josh McAllister was because that organisation receives huge amounts of funding and always has done since it was set up from government. And secondly, Josh McAllister was the lead author of a document called The Blueprint for Children's Social Care, um, so there were already concerns that the government knew when it started the review, broadly speaking, uh, what it wanted from the review. Yes.
1: And he's, he doesn't have a background in social work. He was a teacher, isn't that correct?
2: Yes. Uh, he There's no bra- background at all in children's social care. And... Um, I don't, I don't know the intricacies of his uh, career, um, but from what I've seen and heard, um, it seems to have been a, a very small period of time as a school teacher.
1: Okay. Um, so, thank you, Caroline. Becca, how has Basel responded so far to the review? You know, does the association have concerns? Um, Caroline has, has flagged up a few of Article 39's concerns. Does Basel have concerns and, and what are the association's priorities for the review?
3: I'd just like to start by saying that for me personally, whilst I'm on this podcast, I'm here in the capacity of representing Baswa, but because I spent some time in care as a teenager, um, it's very personal to me. I had some very difficult experiences during that time, so I just really wanted to name those kind of two hats that I'm wearing really as both Baswa professional officer, but also someone with uh, care experience. But in terms of what Baswa has done, BASWA from the very start, has tried to advocate for the review to put children at the heart and to have a rights-based approach. Um, From day one, we were quite vocal about that. So we've released policy statements that sets out our member-informed expectations. Some of those include um, concerns about the length of the review. We feel that there's so much scope um, that seems to be increasing as we go along, as well. So it's it's no longer just focusing on the care system. It's focusing on various aspects. So we were concerned about the time frame. We raised concerns about the leadership of the review, whether it was transparent. Um, we hoped to potentially appoint a co-chair of someone with lived experience. Um, Following these, that statement as well, we have written to the Secretary of State outlining the contractual concerns around the review. Um, you can see some of those on our website. We've created a steering group that um, is made of Baswa members, of diverse members from all different types of backgrounds, and um, we are advocating, but I suppose our concerns are too no, you know too numerous to say within this podcast. But we don't feel that it will really meet the need, the very complex needs of children and families at a time where after 10 years of austerity, services are really on their knees. And I can say that as someone who was in practice 12 months ago, we feel that that anti-poverty approach really needs to be integrated much more.
1: Thank you, Becca. And you said there's too much to mention in this podcast. I'll just uh, highlight that this is the first of two episodes that we're making. And there's going to be a second episode on the Care Review, which will come out on the 23rd of September. So we will be coming back to this issue as it progresses. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that the review team has recently released uh, the Case for Change document. So for listeners out there who may not be aware of that document, what's the purpose of it and what does it set out?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, on the day that the Secretary of State for Education, Gavin Williamson, announced that Josh McAllister had been given the role of leading the review, um, Josh McAllister released a video which set out how he uh, planned to uh, carry out the review. And he said he wanted to do it differently from ordinary reviews, and one way it was going to be different was he issued a call for advice so he asked the uh, care experienced community so children and adults who are growing up in care or grew up in care for their advice on what he should read who he should hear from And how he should endeavour to hear directly from children and young people and parents and families and and social workers and, and people who work in and around children's social care. So that was one big promise of doing this review in a different way. That was a call for advice. Alongside that was a call for evidence. And we were told at the very beginning that there would be um, several calls for evidence. And the first call for evidence was uh, for two researchers, to the research community. And they were asked to send Josh McAllister and his team of largely uh, civil servants, um, all relevant research evidence. And they had a month to submit that to him and then we were waiting for other calls for evidence uh, which didn't happen now less than 3 months after the review started work proper uh, it started work in March 2021 less than 3 months later the case for change was published now bearing in mind when you write a 103 page report uh, there's time at the end for people to review to check it, to get it right, ready for publication. So that first process was far shorter than three months.
1: And do you think, Caroline, was it pre-cooked?
2: I think the overall narrative is following uh, the government's lines in, in key respects. So, for example, the... Narrative that it's not about uh, local authorities having insufficient funds and being starved of the funding that they need to fulfil their legal obligations in the Children Act 1989, but it's how they spend it. That narrative is continued in here. The other government narrative about regulation and legal protections being an impediment to making sure that children and young people and families get what they're entitled to is continued in this document. The overarching narrative of everything must change and it must change really quickly which of course we see in other areas of government policy don't we Uh, in education, in health, in social security, Um, that's following a government narrative. And there was one key way that the chair of the review could have shown himself to be independent of government, and that was on unregulated accommodation for teenagers in care. He could have decided not to go anywhere near that controversial area of policy, um, which my own charity right now, we're awaiting uh, news from the High Court as to whether or not we can have a judicial review of Gavin Williamson's uh, decision to change the law. Um, So the chair of the review could have ducked that if he didn't want to go anywhere near the controversy. But actually, he's done something much worse, in my view. He's sided the review with the government and the government's position. So when it has come to a very specific question as to the needs and rights of children in care, the review, which is proclaiming broadly to lead to huge, radical, bold change for children where the future will be, hugely better for them. They've sided with the government uh, and that's really dangerous and and it doesn't help at all to uh, relieve those of us on the outside who believe that this review uh, is not at all independent uh, and and we feel really worried about uh, what the future holds for children and families.
1: As my as a frontline practitioner, in terms of the scope of the review and, and the recent report, is it addressing the issues that you see that matter to the children that you're supporting?
0: I suppose there's a few different strands of that. I think, firstly, I'd like to raise the, you know, what's happening on the ground in terms of what do social workers actually working with families know about this review? And I'd say that with things being so busy, often engagement in what's happening um, more politically that will impact us as a profession and will impact the children we work with doesn't always reach the forefront of, of our minds. And I think, you know, reading some of the takeaways on Twitter, some of the headlines that came out. Um, and not necessarily reading the whole case for change because there just wasn't time for a lot of people who were doing those roles um, was actually quite harmful so people felt very um, worried about the the representation of social work as a runaway train um, child protection as being sort of out of control um, I suppose I, I have some comments in terms of the detail of the report um, so I felt very much that, you know, I looked through the report, there were 14 mentions of the word neighbour or neighbourhood. So it was very clear that the onus will be put onto the individual family to embed themselves within the community as opposed to providing those um, funded support services that, that had been historically provided.
1: So, is that a big shift towards kinship care, Esme? Is that, is that correct?
0: I think less kinship care, more the family network, so what was supposed to have been embedded with family group conferences, but never quite took off, that more um, big society idea that was popularised. Yeah, it kind
1: of rings as big society 10 years on, doesn't it? Exactly.
0: Yeah. So we're back to David Cameron's 2010.
1: Because yeah, that worked so well. Everybody knows yeah. the big society was a great yeah. triumph. Um.
0: Exactly. Um, And I think the other thing that we've picked up on within my service about how this report's been written, um, there's only one mention of direct work with children and families. So it's very much focused on process and very little interest in that relational aspect of of, um, how we build up relationships with children and why we do that. And I think that's a real lack for
1: this report. Just in terms of a little bit of context, just so that people that aren't familiar maybe with this area of social work, they can understand uh, the scope of of this uh, issue. There's about 80,000 children that are looked after um, uh, in England and 57,000 live in foster care and about just shy of 11,000 live in children's homes. Uh, Caroline, in terms of unregulated placements, do we know how many uh, children and young people are in unregulated placements?
2: Yeah, at any at any one time, uh, there's around six thousand plus children living in unregulated accommodation.
1: So that's more than fifty percent of children that are in children's homes. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, and and one third of sixteen and seventeen year olds who are living in care uh, are in unregulated accommodation, and the government is uh, proposing. To uh, introduce standards for this type of accommodation, which uh, can range from uh, being in a shared house to a child living in a house on their own with support workers coming in for an hour a day or maybe three hours a week um, to bedsits to flats uh, and hostels. And the government is proposing to introduce four standards uh, for this accommodation around the country. And they have deliberately kept out of these standards uh, any uh, requirement to ensure that those teenagers receive day-to-day care, which teenagers in families up and down the country receive, including in foster families, and which children and teenagers in children's homes receive. And the reason they have written out care from those standards is because any provider of accommodation for children in care that gives those children day-to-day care plus accommodation must register with Ofsted as a children's home and meet nine quality standards. Now, three quarters of providers of this accommodation are in the private sector. They run these properties uh, for profit and as businesses. And the government ought, ought to have said this is intolerable for all children in care. We cannot have children growing up in care without adult supervision and day-to-day care. When they get in from school, when they get up in the morning to go to school, when they get up in the morning to go to college, they should have absolutely said that this is intolerable and we're going to fix it. And we're going to fix it by having the starting principle that all children in care receive care. And they didn't do that. And in our view, that is because they have made it the easiest route possible for the providers of the accommodation rather than actually uh, working out and sticking with what children and young people need. And, and that is what the review has gone with. They have said uh, it's an outrage, it's a national scandal that children aged 13 and under are in this type of accommodation. Well, the government statistics showed that there was 40 children aged 13 and under in this type of accommodation. Of course, it's wrong and scandalous that 40 children aged 13 and under are in this type of accommodation. Um, but speaking as a former local authority social worker who has worked in and around the care system for over 30 years, it's also wrong for children aged 16 and 17 not to have adult carers who are there for them, not to mollycoddle them, not, I mean, we can, parents mollycoddle teenagers, but not to impose and, uh, uh, rules and, and care on them that's inappropriate to their age and to their growing autonomy. Um, but they need to have adults there. For them.
1: And does that, um, Caroline, Becca, Esme, does that point to a lack of a sufficient rights-based approach to this review? I mean, one of the issues I was keen to talk about is um, whether the review pays adequate focus to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Are these issues interrelated?
2: Well, we also want the review to have at its core the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, but actually if they'd been focused on children <laughs> that would have been a completely um, brilliant starting point um the un convention on the rights of the child uh is is uh was drafted it took the un 10 years to draft it it's drafted on all of the multitude of needs and opportunities and experiences that children need from naught to 18 throughout their childhood. Um, so that's there as a, as, a, as a backup for policymakers that don't know themselves uh, what children need uh, and what they should be provided with. Um, so, of course, the UN Convention should be at the centre. But come on, if, if you are running a review... That is promising love and stability and care uh, and a bright, fantastic future for every child. Uh, how can you not see that 16 and 17 year olds in the care of the state need to have where they live day to day care?
3: I completely agree with you, Caroline, as someone who was in. Um, that setting as a 16 and 17 year old I was really struck when you described that setting as intolerable for me that was very much my experience whilst my you know peers were going through their A-levels and had nurturing supportive homes and access to all the basics that children need food, electricity, water, love, stability um, I was in a setting where I was so struck by poverty at sixteen. I was responsible for managing my own budget. Um, I would often go that meant you know six weeks of waiting for benefits to kick in when I first moved in. that meant living without electricity. it meant writing essays for my A levels under you know with a candle in one hand and a pen in the other hand. it meant. I remember very clearly one time I I was so hungry. um, I rummaged through old birthday cards and Christmas cards in the desperate hope of finding £10 to get me through that week. Um, I really just hear you when you're talking about the comparison between a foster home where children would have all of the support and nurture that they need and those settings which, in my experience... be very sterile and hostile. Um, Children need a space where they can feel, you know, a kind of relief from the daily stresses of life and and for me, being in that setting, it was a very small bedsit um, in a really deprived part of town. It had prison bars on the window and that's no exaggeration. No child should have to ever experience that and i also know that looking into the statistics um, children who have been through awful circumstances whether they're migrants or refugees um, black and minoritized children are overrepresented in these systems as well so it really just speaks to a deep-seated social inequality Um, i also know that children's brains don't stop developing until they're age 25 and so to expect looked after children to almost be nine years ahead of everyone else is just completely unacceptable. I could go on and on and on about this. But um, interesting to hear your take on the uh, human rights perspective as well.
1: I mean, if we're going to make sure that the review meets the needs of young people in the care system, it's really essential that they're meaningfully involved in co-production and co-production is one of those terms. We've talked about it in the podcast before. It can be very meaningful. It can be entirely tokenistic, you know, if it's not done right. So if we're going to make sure there's a proper evidence base um, for the review involving children and young people, but also um, ensuring that it's not restricted solely to children and young young people, but also that uh, there's input from their families, communities uh, more widely, and social workers. Esme, I'd be really keen to hear from you um, about how you feel that young people can be meaningfully engaged and involved in a co-production process, and and whether or not that is actually being taken forward adequately as part of the review.
0: I think... COVID and lockdowns have given us quite a unique opportunity to connect with children and get feedback from them in a way that perhaps we hadn't thought of before. Um, And certainly within my organisation, we're really focusing in on how we connect with children, um, how we develop those relationships. And what we're able to see is with increasing technology, we're able to share lots of our Um, thoughts around theory and models we use with families in a way that would never have been accessible before, in a way that really works for families to to fully understand the ideas that we're working with and in a way that I believe equalises the playing field. Um, We are using the information and I think it's that sharing of of information that is, is unique to what's going on for us at the moment. We're using interactive whiteboards to be able to do that. Um, I didn't see a lot in the review about that and I think that really stuck out for me in terms of going through it quite carefully to think through the impact on on that direct work with children and families And, and that was certainly an area that I felt was missing.
1: And what's your sense Esme? Is it something that's missing by accident or is the review team just not sufficiently interested in engaging with young people?
0: I mean, there there is a focus on the amount of social work trained practitioners who are not doing um, work with children. So people like myself, managers who um, have the training but aren't going into people's homes. Um, I mean, I don't know if there's a, a move towards self-managing social workers um, and I, I certainly didn't feel that my role was valued given that, you know, I've been a social worker and, and I now want to share that experience and support others to do that role. Um, I, I did wonder what exactly the, the proposed alternative is.
1: Becca, as somebody who has lived experience, as you've discussed, how do you feel is the best way to involve children and young people that are in the care system in the review, in a, in a really meaningful way?
3: I think the first thing that comes to mind is have an anti-poverty approach I know that when I was 16, 17, living without electricity, let alone Wi-Fi, doing an online survey or taking part in virtual conferences would have been absolutely impossible. Um, So it really needs to consider how can children in those very specific circumstances engage? It needs to be face-to-face, it needs to be trauma-informed, it needs to be Building on the relationships that are already there as well. I think that when you've been in care and when you've had so many social workers having to continually tell your experiences can actually be really painful. And for me, I remember getting to the point where I just didn't want to open up those old wounds to anyone else. And so I think the best way would be to take a grassroots approach. So approach local authorities. Local authorities already have excellent social workers who know and understand those children. So it would be about really utilising those existing relationships as well.
1: And Becca, you started that answer talking about poverty. So we've had more than a decade of austerity, um, and that has had a massive impact, both on service users, but also on social work services as well and local authority budgets. Does the case for change acknowledge this? I mean, does it set out plans to increase funding? Does it recognise that there's a need there?
3: There seems to be a disconnect between Acknowledging that um, the system is quote unquote, you know, a wonky Jenga tower. I think that that might not be word for word. So it acknowledges, yes, that there are huge structural problems, but what it doesn't do is tie those dots directly to austerity. Um, what I'm concerned about is in the contract signed by the chair, um, the chair had to sign up to essentially not asking for more funding or if they did ask for more funding that those savings would have to be taken from another public pot and that's completely it's terrifying to think that an already overstretched education or health system might have to suffer because of the shortfall the well the already existing shortfall in social care and I'm sure that Esme um, managing a team will have seen the results of those cuts as well. Just wondering what your thoughts are.
0: Um, it's not rare for us to work with families where they have to choose what to spend money on, and parents will go without eating so that children can. Um, in terms of my team, you know, I've, I manage two newly qualifieds, two who are in their second year, and one who's in her third, and that's not an unusual makeup. So we've got very, well, relatively inexperienced teams who are going out and doing this work. And we? I think we really need to think about how we're valuing social workers within the profession. Um, and I suppose that, for me, is the biggest dilemma. How do we encourage people to stay within the profession when there are messages from central government that this is a runaway train that you're attached to? And, and actually, I think from reading the contract, um, the article by Baz were about the contract, we need to think about, if the if the government has said we're not to be criticised, where does that blame land? It only lands on the profession. And, you know, I think what does that do to people who will be affected by it, including social workers?
1: Well, it fundamentally comes to that issue around whether or not this is independent. If the government's saying do a review, but don't say anything nasty about us, the guy's hands are tied from the start. Now, I'm not defending Josh McAllister, but th- you know that puts you in a particular type of bind in terms of if if there is no opportunity to um, call for additional funding in the review, where are they trying to make savings what What are the proposals that are that are being put forward? Have they been made at this stage in terms of how money can be saved and spent in other ways
2: um, just Just on signing a contract that ties you in uh, legally to not make recommendations for children and their families to have more of our public funds. These are collective funds. These are uh, resources uh, that belong to our whole country. Um, you could call me naive, although I've been around uh, a very long time. Um, but I think a independent, a truly independent chair, somebody who had been approached uh, that knew. Uh, the the lives of children and families, uh, what they endure and the circumstances uh, that they have to live in uh, under crushing poverty. Um, Somebody who knew the lack of resources and the lack of uh, complementary services that social workers have uh, to help families and to help children and young people when they're living in care, be that... uh, child and adolescent mental health services, be that adequate, good housing, be that a social security system that actually provides social security. I think somebody who had been approached who knew all that and understood all that and had um, experience of speaking truth to power uh, would have said, I cannot sign that element of this contract, and I would love to do this review, and I would love to bring in this person, that person, uh, th- this organization, that organization, to really bring about fantastic change for children and families, but I just cannot before I even start my first day, I cannot say this isn't going to cost. Money. So I think he could have. He could. Well, an independent chair could have done with the the uh, necessary experience. Just coming back to Esme's point on the runaway train and and Becker. You do have to read the the report very carefully because, of course, the runaway train is the narrative that's been in the newspapers. Newspapers are easier to read, newspaper columns, than a 103-page report. When you get into the detail of the report, it's not actually saying that we shouldn't have a child protection system where mums and dads are uh, going to feel, on occasion, very powerless, And very uh, distraught by the challenge that social workers have to bring in order to protect children. On child protection, it is saying that social workers need to act more decisively. And what what the case for change is doing is splitting family help from child protection. Now, it doesn't tell us in this report, but a very eminent professor of social policy and social work who has herself undertaken uh, a review of child protection for the government in the past, Professor Eileen Monroe, she has publicly said back in May, so before this report came out, that the review is planning to split child protection from family help. Now, the Children Act 1989 has them together, and certainly when I was a local authority social worker, um, we prov- we needed we needed all of those services and all those additional helps uh, for families in order to protect children. I was a, a, a social work, a local authority social worker at a time when you could write a letter to the council and get a family a new council house with extra bedrooms. I was a social worker at a time when you could write letters to Social Security, DHSS as it was, the Department of Health and Social Security, and get grants for families, for carpets, for curtains, for duvets, I used to go shopping with families that I worked with to buy duvets, to buy pillows, to help them choose food and and carpets, um, to deal with the poverty that they were facing. My team, we had our own building, which was uh, located in front of the, the housing offices, we we not only had our own building, we had our own kitchen. We kept that kitchen stocked with food. Children knew we were there. We were we were a patch based social work team. They used to come up the fire escape at at school lunchtime or after school because we'd make them food. Now, Esme talked about her her team, and of 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 people that are are newish into to local authority social work and there really is something to be said for uh social workers now hearing how social work, not not i'm not saying these were the gold this is, was a golden age by any means at all but in order for social workers to be able to fulfill what our professional code of ethics, what our professional values, what the law says we are there to fulfil. We need all these other systems to work really well for children and families. And of course, this 103-page report, the word austerity doesn't appear once, which is remarkable given the context in which social workers Um, are working and and the context in which children and families are living.
1: Thank you, Caroline. Um, In relation to, Becca, the, the, the major issues that social workers have identified that need to be addressed by the review, I mean, I know there are many, but I'm keen to talk about issues around shortages of spaces in care. Is that something you can talk to us a little bit about?
3: The number of children in care has increased dramatically over the past 10 years and Unfortunately, it's becoming more and more difficult to find appropriate placements. I think also the complexity of issues that children and families are facing has dramatically changed as well. So I remember in a recent podcast, Andy, we spoke about gangs and county lines and and contextual safeguarding. Um, So in terms of those shortages, uh, without speaking out of turn, I think that there's a number of entrepreneurs out there who have seen this as a profit making exercise and they've identified that there's gap in the market and so set up all sorts of accommodation, uh, unregulated accommodation can include anything from bedsits to tents to caravans and so in terms of that shortage that is a real issue. I think there's also a real issue in some of those unregulated placements when it comes to the staff. Um, staff don't always have to be um, social work qualified and as Caroline Caroline has said, they don't always have to um, adhere to those the same care standards that maybe children's homes or foster homes do. So I think those two issues are very much related.
1: And Esme, how is that affecting you at the front line in terms of being able to place children?
0: Well, I'm in a referral and assessment team, so it's more infrequent that we would be placing children Um, But I am aware, of course, that it's those complexities that make things more difficult. You know, if you have a, a child who's been consistently experiencing abuse or neglect for a long period, the difficulties they'll face then in building relationships are that much greater, leading to obviously higher need and the need for a foster carer who's trained and supported enough to be able to meet that and, and there simply aren't enough. I mean, it, it's been going on for quite a long time now. Um, certainly, it's an issue that remains. I think there is a lot of money in this. When we think about residential placements um, for parenting assessment, we know we know that those um, organisations make a fair bit of profit on those assessments that local authorities have to pay for to provide safety and assessment for um particularly babies when they are um, not necessarily when it's judged that it's not necessarily safe for the the babies to remain with their parents um, after birth and I think that clearly that's an area that needs to be considered quite carefully.
1: And is it going to address issues around um, out of area placements and the problems that can be associated with that?
2: So yes there there are many places in the report where it is very child focused. Um, Of course uh, from the outside you wanted to keep That's that thread of being child focused to get to the right conclusions and the right recommendations to stay with the child, not to trail off and and to go with a more palatable for the government conclusion. Um, But it is very clear that there needs to be uh, many more uh, suitable homes for children in care uh, in the right places Um, and and the right type of care. And um, it is critical of children being uh, dislodged from their communities, uprooted from their communities and sent many miles away uh, from home and also being torn apart from their sisters and brothers, uh, which is uh, a real concern of our children's rights charity uh, that... uh, Too infrequently are children's relationships between themselves uh, not valued to the same degree as children's relationships with their parents or other uh, relatives who are adults. And time and time again, research and children and young people and adults who've grown up in in care have, have told us in graphic Uh, in graphic detail what it means uh, to lose that connection with a sister or a brother and just how enriched children's lives are um, by being able to grow up and 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 stay staying in connection with with their sisters and brothers so it is strong on that um the challenge is what it will come up with next it's 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 made one very clear uh policy decision on children in care and it it made the wrong call so we have to wait for when uh it issues its its next and its final report to see whether it it continues to make recommendations that are palatable with the current government and are generally in the flow of government policy, or whether they can disassociate themselves from government policy and actually stay with the needs and rights of children and young people and adults who've grown up in care and and more widely with with families and what families need and are entitled to uh, from the state.
1: Thanks, Caroline. Becca, structural racism, it feeds into so many aspects of public services. And it's we, we discussed this. You mentioned the episode about County Lines. Previously, we, we discussed that back in April. And it's a really great episode. I'd encourage anybody who hasn't listened to that one yet to go back and find it. We've also explored the impacts of structural racism recently in an episode with our colleague Chantelle Thomas and also Met Joyner, the president of the National Association of Social Workers in the USA. And in that episode, we dug into re- loads of examples of the impacts of structural racism uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. We looked at health inequality policy, educational attainment and more. But coming back to the Care Review, Baswa has stated the children's social care system disproportionately fails people from black and minoritised communities and these failings must be addressed via the Care Review. Can you tell me about how the system is failing black and minoritised communities and how it can be fixed?
3: Absolutely. So I think that it's important to go right back to policy when it comes to thinking about the disadvantages faced by black and minoritised communities. So this goes so much beyond social care, it goes to the structural inequalities that black and minoritised children are overrepresented in um, areas of poverty. Um, Black and minoritised people are far less likely to have access to secure employment, um, overrepresented in prison systems, Children are subject to what's called adultification from a very young age as well. So in education systems, black and minority children are much likely to be excluded. They're much likely to end up in what are called pupil referral units, which essentially is a a pipeline to the criminal justice system. And so we know that there are these overarching um, issues in society and when it comes to black and minoritized children being failed by the system, absolutely, social work has so very far to go um, to acknowledge and to understand and to build bridges and to improve things. I know that I cannot speak with authority on this subject, um, I'm from a mixed race family myself but I'm white passing so I'd really encourage listeners to speak directly to Black and minoritised children themselves understand their experiences, look at the research. There's so, so far that we have to go. But when it comes to the care review itself, I think that whilst these issues were noted at a kind of surface level in the case for change document, there was a lack of real and deep engagement with that and I, I couldn't see any meaningful or tangible commitments to addressing that and what that would look like.
1: Okay, okay, and BASWA is representing that, that need for that to be addressed, though, in the review?
3: Absolutely. So we are advocating um, for the review to take an actively anti-racist approach.
1: One final question in relation to uh, issues that need to be addressed in the review. I mean, the transition from care to adulthood, it's often described as a cliff edge. From what we've seen so far, Caroline, does the, um, does the review recognise this cliff edge and, and does it recognise a need to address that as a problem?
2: It does refer to the cliff edge and it does um, talk about the, the needs and the rights of adults um, throughout their adulthood. So there's, there's slight hints that the review may be looking at extended uh, support and help for people who grow up in care. Um, but I have to say I'm not optimistic. Um, because there's slight hints throughout the 103 pages that the uh, review could come to uh, recommendations and conclusions that really do work for children, for young people, for adults who've grown up in care and for families. Um, But what we've heard publicly And what we've seen in uh, the summaries really do suggest that the review is continuing uh, the policy agenda of government. A policy agenda that only a very small number of people uh, in the country are very actively and closely involved in. And deregulation has been central to that agenda uh, for, for several years.
1: Now this process is far from over. Um, what opportunities are there in place for social workers and people with lived experience to contribute to the review going forward?
3: So the case for change document does set out that people with lived and living experience and, and social workers will be consulted. It sets out that there will be various opportunities to do this. Um, through ongoing surveys on the um, review website and also through a series of uh, video conferences and, and different opportunities. So I would recommend that people refer directly to that document and to the review website.
2: So the deadline for uh, submitting uh, a response to the case for change is mid-August. And the document itself poses 15 very broad Questions and then within the text, there's some other uh, questions, but they're not brought out at the end of each section. Um, I just think it would have been much better had the review started with very uh, broad questions and a very broad invitation to all of those people the children the young people who are directly uh, affected by children's social care now the children and young people who are growing up in care their families their mums their dads their grandmas their grandads their their other relatives and and the workforce the social work workforce but also other um, professionals and practitioners that work in and around children's social care and, and interest groups like like Article 39. It would have been so much better had the process been open from the start where we could all look in one place, we could look at the website and we could see how to get involved, what they were proactively going to do to make sure everybody knew as far as is possible about the review and that who they're speaking with, who they're hearing from is logged, is documented, is transparent on their website. Um, So that would have been just the much better way. The position we're in now is we've got less than a month to answer very broad questions and that process will then lead to Josh McAllister with no background in children's social care making recommendations to government for the bold radical reimagining of children's social care and he's already said publicly that the reason it's being done so quickly And it really is a process being undertaken in haste because, as Becca said earlier, this is everything in and around children's social care that the review is apparently looking at. And Josh McAllister has said publicly that the reason for the haste is to make use of the Conservative Party majority in the House of Commons. Now, that is not reassuring.
1: It's not reassuring at all. Not at all. Becca, Esme, Caroline, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this issue. It's, it's so vitally important and it is an issue we're going to be coming back to. As I said, we'll have another episode on the Care Review on the 23rd of September, so please look out for that. Becca, just to finish, I'll give you the last word.
3: Thank you. I would really encourage all listeners to contribute to Baswa's response for the, to the Case for Change document. Um, We will be submitting that on the 13th of August, but our deadline for members to um, respond is the 30th of July. Very, very much encourage people from minoritised backgrounds of all intersectionalities to complete that as well so that it's truly inclusive, and please do spread the word.